guess nerds are getting pretty cool these days, but it uh, wasn't always that way. Talk Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba to news. If you think the show is at least worth a dollar, why not donate to our Patreon account? Follow the links at scubaobsessed.com. Scuba Obsessed episode 292 is recorded live July 28th, 2016. Welcome back to Scoop Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. We're joining me this week. We have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Glad to be here. And also joining us recently out of the water, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Excellent, Darren. Thanks for having me. Well, we certainly appreciate it. So for those who have been listening to the show for a while, Kevin is a new voice. He's going to join us and help us along. What would you say is your favorite part of diving, Kevin? Well, that's kind of hard to say. Uh, there are so many parts of it that I enjoy. Um, you know, <laughs> I'll say today, one of my favorite, my favorite part today was that no matter how stressful your day has been, no matter what you've got going on the surface, once you're down there, it's just you and your buddy or you and the fish. You know, the, the world up on the top doesn't really matter when you're down there. It's just kind of, that's your focus right there. I uh, really enjoy that. You know, I, I love the history of it, of, of the wrecks down there. I mean, I, I, could, I could take your whole podcast on what I like about diving. <laughs> I won't. So. We'll give you a shot as, as time goes on. Just so people have a little bit of a background, when did you get started diving? Um, I'm a relatively new diver. I've only been, I've, I've been snorkeling for years, but only actually been scuba diving for uh, three years now. Um, I'm a very avid diver. I believe tonight was dive number 304 for me. Um, I, I dive a lot. You know, I'm hoping to hit 400 this year and well, that's, that's of course before the end of the year. So we shall see. And I believe you can do it. So what was it you said last week, Mac? Uh, he, he was, he's got to be diving more than anybody else. And the club is, but also I, I mentioned last week that he did it the right way. He started out slow and he took the different classes and he, became proficient at what he was doing before he went to the next section. And you're up to your deep diving. You're, you're, you've got your rescue diver already. You're working on your master diver. Yes, I am. And that's, that's the way to go. He didn't take any shortcuts, and he didn't try to do too much at one time. So no hero, uh, zero to hero in a week or, or so. Absolutely. That's a good way to put it. Well, scuba diving is not really a sport that you want to do that. I mean, you, you definitely there's a lot of information to absorb. There are a lot of skills you have to uh, become proficient in before you can move on to the next. It's it's extremely cumulative. I don't see any other way to go about it, really. So, but I love it. You know, um, I'll tell you my my only regret about scuba diving is that I'm 46 years old and I wish I'd started it when I was younger. Yeah, um, that's my only only regret. What convinced you? What was the trigger that you decided that you were going to go and get certified? Well, well there were a couple of tr triggers there. One, one of them was Jim Schultz. You know, I 
bump into him. Uh, he was doing one of his presentations on diving and uh, was entranced with that. You know, I knew a few guys that did it, and they were all, you know, they were always trying to get me into it as well. I'd been snorkeling for years. I'd been interested in the history of shipwrecks and had been exploring them you know, with a snorkel, which you know, there are quite a few you can do that with. Just decided I wanted to see wrecks that were in better condition, ones you could actually explore better. You know, Because if, if you're with scuba tanks, of course, you're down there face-to-face with it and instead of having to you know, hold your breath and <laughs> go down and look better, right along those lines. Well, we'll certainly learn more about you and your diving as, the, as we record more episodes. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Dave Toneman, who you've heard on the show a few times. He's he's in the chat room. Also, he's corralling some of the guests who have been in there, and we have a few new ones. We have Scuba Tech, and we also have uh, a guest number three who sounds like an interested diver. For those of you who want to participate in the chat room, we're currently streaming on TalkShoe, show 73759. So what we do is we record uh, roughly about 9 o'clock. We've been running about 10 o'clock with the dive season going on. Everybody gets their Thursday, Thursday dives. And then we come in and we record the program. Most likely in September, we will be moving on to streaming some video, just working on some bandwidth requirements, working out some of the technical details. If that's the case, we'll give you a couple of channels. You'll be able to watch the video live. And you'll discover why we have a face for radio. Also, we talked about, if you listen to last week's episode, we talked about Patreon. Probably do a little bit of plug at the end of the, uh, the show, and maybe we'll insert some ads before. But what Patreon is, is Patreon a way that we are trying to get the program funded so we can upgrade to prove the quality of the podcast, uh, audio quality, be able to add some video, and we'll be able to add some additional content, put a little bit more information at your fingertips, things that you will enjoy and find useful. So if you're a new diver, an experienced diver, we're looking to have something for you. If you think the show is at least worth a dollar, and we hope you do, you can donate to our Patreon account. Go ahead and follow the links on www.scubaobsessed.com. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article that we have up is landowners are fed up with trash in the river, and I don't blame them. That, that kind of drives me nuts as well. This one is the San Marcos River. So this is out of San Marcos, Texas. People living along the river are familiar with noise of tubers. The residents are voicing concern, saying it's unacceptable amount of trash that's being left behind in the wake of weekend floating. So what's happening is tubers are entering the water. They have their floats. Uh, and where they're getting them from is the Texas State Tubes and Don's Fish Camp, Camp both of which operate west of Martindale. Everyone has right to use the river tubers and swimmers, but they don't have right to degrade our precious resource, says Mike's McCobb, who lives along the river. McCobb says, uh, has lived along the river since 1978, says the trash in the river has really become a problem in the last 10 years. I mean, it's really, it's really terrible. On Sunday, McCobb and some friends went out to show what was left behind after a fun-filled weekend, and he posted the video on YouTube that was taken before local tubing companies had a chance to clean up the trash. Uh, they say it's since been picked up, but McCall says the problem isn't solved at ground level. Typically, it's easy to pick up the trash on gravel bars, but unfortunately, a lot of the trash remains. To prove it, Mike went out once again on Wednesday with a scuba diver, Grant Tuma. It's disappointing. It's definitely subpar on the cleanliness of Tuma. Tuma said he came across areas of, where litter was at least four feet deep. We know where these spots are easily accessed, and it's still there, so it means no resources put towards these, said Tuma. 
Co-owner of Texas State Tubes, Richard Lawrence, says his company, along with Don's Fish Camp, has agreed to keep that stretch of the river as clean as possible through a memorandum of understanding with the state of Texas. Lawrence says his company does weekly cleanups, but only on a shore, but with divers as well. According to McCall, their efforts aren't good enough, and he says that this is the proof. Look at the video. They say they have divers. They say it's pristine, but that's why when uh, we went Sunday, we did a video to show it's not pristine. Lawrence says Texas State Tubes is working on a detailed report that will be released Monday explaining all their cleanup efforts. Something needs to be done. It's going to get worse. The population of Texas is growing. or getting more and more people here. It's just going to fully degrade our beautiful river. And the solution is? Don't put it in the first place. Can, how come we don't see cans like that where we're diving? Cans because like of what? the deposit law. If that oh, the, I see what you're saying. I'd be down there picking those cans up myself. You wouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. I take two feet from there. I'll take care of them for you. That's a lot of cans, guys. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of cans. Yeah, so for those who don't know, uh, in the state of Michigan in the 70s, and I think it was about 72 or 73, we enacted a bottle deposit. And at the time, uh, and if you, sometimes you'll see, you'll get a can or a bottle in the store where they've, you know, they, they make one bottle for all the states. And a lot of them will have a nickel. I'd say a lot of them, I think five or six. And then we had a dime, and we were like twice what everybody else was. From the time they put that law in place, roads cleaned up in less than a season. People, I mean, it was money. And that was back when a dime was a lot worth, it was probably more like the value of a quarter is now. Well, even today, you still see people walking the streets looking for cans like that. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there are um, quite a few folks folks who put the time into it there. As, as a middle school-aged person, I... After they, we, there used to be Venetian Festival. This is up in Saugatuck, Michigan. Venetian Festival. Me and my sister, and it was probably crazy. We were out doing it as, as uh, preteens, but we would go just scour the downtown during the festival and pick up cans. We we would fill eight nine trash bags just full of bottles. You know, it's fifty sixty dollars for just walking around. So you you're, you got a great point there, Mac. If they put a can deposit. You would not see those. That that right there, what we're seeing in the just the first frame of this video, uh, that'd be about three bucks. Well, I've been I just looked that up while you guys were talking, and uh, they've actually got a couple of House bills and Senate bills in Texas trying to do just what we said: implement, you know, a fee for the uh, bottles. And as soon as they do that, you're going to see people stop that noise. I mean, the nonsense. I'd love to find and go out there if there's a deposit law. I mean. They're going to pay for your dive very easily. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that, uh, like Michigan, all the bottlers complained about it. They're going to have to buy new equipment. They're going to have to clean and recycle the bottles. They complained. It, was, it wasn't too long for them to figure out that they made more money because they collected the deposit on the bottles, and then anything that didn't get returned in, they got to pocket. In fact, I think the state just in the last few years has been trying to figure out ways to get that money out of the bottlers. Yeah, I think the state has been uh, laying claim to that money now, which is uh, not not reclaimed by the retailers. So um, not sure what, where that's going to go because um, it's not open-ended by any means that the retailers get, get to pocket that money for the long term. So mm-hmm. some change on that in the near future. But that will certainly clean it up. But you, you're right, Mac, that putting the deposit on there will help clean it up. And just people don't put the trash in the first place. And the trash starts – not just for the stuff that you directly throw in the water, but anything that goes in the land eventually flows there. Now, what we're seeing here in the article is just cans. Um, 
I have a hunch, though, that this is more than, than just cans we're talking about. Um, you know, the picture I see here, yeah, um, all it shows is cans and sticks, but uh, I'm sure that's just one picture of many they have of this here. Um, they said he put a video on YouTube about it there. I'm curious what else was in that video, if it's still up. Uh, so I'm going to mute the yeah, tab and, uh, and watch the video. Okay. And if you do that, make sure you, you cancel the audio first. I've got it starting to run right now. Let's take a look and see what it looks like. Yeah. They call it tuber trash. Yeah. Of course, I'm getting the nine-minute uh, advertisement for uh, Nissan Maxwell yeah. uh, dealership. They're starting out on the shoreline, and you're talking about cans, but you're talking about all sorts of garbage, too. It's not just cans. No, you're talking about plastics. You're talking about tie wraps. You're talking about used floats, floating toys, vinyl. Well, you've got the styrofoam coolers. So what it is is imagine you've got a bunch of uh, rowdy spring breakers, and so you go to your local liquor store, you pick up a styrofoam cooler, throw some ice in it, fill it up with a bunch of beer, and then plan on not taking any of it away. And But the density of this is unbelievable. I mean, this is crazy. Uh, well, and also there's possibly an issue with enforcement here. You know, um, I know that in Michigan they've really been uh, you know, enforcing um, drunk driving offenses for people who are uh, just tubing or, tubing or kayaking now. Um, it used to be that you had to have some sort of a motor on your vessel to get a drunk driving offense. But now they broadened the uh, definition of what a vessel is, and you can get a DUI on a tube or a canoe or, or anything, that basically, which supports now, you now. Are you or, aware or of... Lawnmower. Yeah, I've, I've heard of people on lawnmowers before, but that's just because, I mean, that's people just trying to get around the law. Uh, well, there's a, there's a country song about that, as I recall, too, wasn't yeah. there? I mean, I think, I, I think you're right. Uh, but the one thing I'm wondering is at what point, uh, how far can you enforce that? So you, they may interpret it, but, you know, to me, if I'm floating on a raft down the river and I've, you know, I'm at an intoxication level, it seems like it'd be easier to get you on public intoxication than a DUI. Well, like, what, what, what's, if you have that level of trash there, I mean, that, 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 to me, that implies a great deal of drinking to excess. And, you know, if we had, you know, it's, to the state, that's lost revenue. I mean, people that are doing that, you can find them and, you know, um, make them clean it up. You know, when they, when they have their court dates, say hey, that that's your, uh, your your civil service, you know, your community service you're getting is going back to the river and cleaning that, cleaning that baby up, you know. Uh, you know, and it sounds like, you know, by the terminology in this article, uh, you know, memorandums of understanding, um, it sounds like this has been an ongoing issue, and there has been some, you know, issues. You know, they, 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 the courts are involved at this point already. Yeah. So um, I think it's mostly a matter of, you know, enforcing what's already in place. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I just watched the whole video, and it's a fairly high-density amount of trash, wouldn't you say, Mac? Oh, heck yes. Uh, on the bottom, it's like, – because we'll, we'll – and, and we don't know if he's edited it. You know, was there – open stretches where there was no trash and he just didn't want to put in the video. That's possible. But looking at this is imagine your best honey hole for collectible bottles. And that being the whole bottom just of beer cans and, and modern beer cans and bottles. Yeah. Not, not nothing that you want to go re- recover out because it's, it's a nostalgic bottle. No, you know, no, but, but something is, which, you know, what's this doing to the fish habitat? I mean, what is this doing? I mean, um, wow. Well, I mean, 
the ecological impact of this here. You know, um, you know, it's not just simply a matter of being unsightly. Um, you know, I wonder if there are any fish in that area. If it's a pop, I don't, I don't fix the fi- fishing is huge in Texas. Uh, must have done the habitat up there. Yeah, this is certainly something that we don't want to see in the water, and hopefully they come up with it, a way around it. And also, the next article up is a reminder of make sure you know where your stuff is and keep your car locked. Uh, Brookville police are investigating a theft of St. Lawrence Park that was reported on Sunday afternoon. Scuba gear as well as a woman's purse, both speaker and cell phone, were removed from a locked vehicle sometime between 8 a.m. and noon. The vehicle is locked, according to the police news release, uh, release issue on Tuesday. Scuba gear is valued at several thousand dollars. Investigation continues. Anyone with information is asked to contact contact the Brockville police. And there's a number there so you could search on it. This was, uh, where's Brockville? Yeah. Toronto. So I'm guessing it's somewhere. Yeah. Key items for that kind of items, though, is what they've always talked about is never leave it so you can see it through the windows. Yeah. And back in dive school, it used to be if you don't want somebody to want to take a look in your trunk, don't put your dive stickers on your windows. Oh, but you, you got to like, have a dive sticker. Or your parachuting symbol on your car because yeah. they'll say, must be in the trunk. That's worth thousands of dollars. Yeah, and I've heard the same thing is that they, they recommend that you don't put that scuba dive plate on the front of your vehicle. Uh, so, I, I mean, I guess that's a trade off of you try not to advertise it, but definitely don't leave it sitting out in the seat where somebody can see it. And we are at that time of the year where what happens? It is lobster mini season. Opening day was, uh, was that today? Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> that's, that's, that's Mac. <laughs> I think I was, we'll blame Mac. Click on it to take a look at it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, you, what you have to do is, uh, I've, I've been using Chrome. Chrome has recently added the mute tab button. So, mute, mute tab saves me from that. That's, if it's getting to be anytime I open a window, I mute tab. So, the lobster diehards are enjoying their mini season. Stormy weather early Wednesday kept a fair number of people from diving for lobster on the opening day. Uh, the diehards uh, weren't bothered by the rain. They went out anyway. Lobster mini season's biggest holiday of the summer, and they celebrate it no matter what. Uh, Dennis, uh, Bill Dennis of Lighthouse Point says he watched the storm come in. He went out to Hillsborough Inlet before dawn. He said, it got nasty. Dennis rode out the brief storm while his divers searched for lobster off to Lauderdale by the sea. After that, skies were sunny, the ocean calmed and conditions weren't too bad although visibility in the water wasn't great it says i would call about 15 feet which that's that's like a mile isn't it it got better as the day went on maybe because the sun came out a few more boats as well as beach divers kayakers paddleboards showed up but it's not really the crowd that they normally expect now not being in florida what the mini season is that just the one day thing or is this the uh the kickoff to the regular season well probably i know that when it comes to like uh duck hunting and deer hunting around you have a number of little mini seasons around here so it probably you know it's going to be just a shortened season not the main season but just a shortened season yep so here we look at the 2016 lobster season and mini season dates so this year mini season falls on july 27th and 28th so it ended today so just as we're recording this program people are finishing up Make sure that to verify dates and regulations, it begins at 12.01 on AM on Wednesday and ends at 12 midnight on Thursday. So you have about 65 minutes to get your lobster. The regular eight-month lobster season is always August 6th through March 31st. So what's, I wonder what the rationale behind mini season is. Is it just like a 
teaser? Or do they need to control population somehow? Or Well, I know that with the uh, with the uh, duck hunting in, in Michigan and goose hunting, it has to do with the different species migrating. Um, so they'll, and they'll kind of have areas where like duck season and goose season will overlap a little bit. And I know they're trying to kind of tailor so people aren't in the same area. Um, one goose hunting, one deer hunting, well, one goose hunting, one duck hunting. So there's a lot of factors involved, but, I, but mostly around here, it's due to the species migrating. I'm not sure it lobsters have some kind of a breeding cycle like that. So it, yeah. that's so my two cents. They're saying that the mini season, uh, they've, or, they've already got next year scheduled, and they say it's always the last consecutive Wednesday and Thursday in July. Next year, the season falls on July 26th and 27th. They said, as always, you want to verify dates and regulations, the Florida Fish and Wildlife. Which it's always a good idea to check on it and uh, make sure that you're properly permitted and following the rules. I'm sure there are take quantity limits and size quantity limits, and you don't want to lose your gear because you took something you shouldn't. And then kind of going out at the same time, there's some uh, fishing derbies going on. One was at Wright, Wrightsville Beach. It's a spearfishing tournament. The winner took 80.2 pounds of fish free diving. It was Tony Dooley from Puerto Rico caught over the weekend and earned him a title of Master Hunter of 82 other participants at the 8th Annual Wrightsville Beach Spearfishing Tournament, the 22nd through the 24th. This year's tournament was the largest ever. They caught 140 fish, weighing a total of 1,600 pounds. In addition to Master Hunter title, prizes were awarded in three divisions, inshore, pelagic, and bottom fish. So that's pretty good the fish are averaging over 10 pounds a piece um, yeah so if you get a little tiny one you had some big ones so well, just go ahead but looking at the picture here i mean i'm seeing you know that there's a clearly a lobster in that catch as well so uh it's not just about our fin fins either no that's what i was wondering and this date doesn't seem to correspond with the the mini lobster season so i don't know how that was in there um but they said a bottom species are included are grouper, snapper, hogfish, which can weigh as much as 30 pounds. Uh, local scuba diver Chris Slog won the division with 41.7 pounds of fish. The pelagic species, which are typically found 60 miles offshore, include tunas, waterloo, mai mai. Dooley caught 40.3 pounds of fish to add the division win to his Master Hunter title. McGinnis also created linefish division to encourage divers to hunt invasive species, they eat all the baby fish, marine biologist Aaron Burge said. They don't have any natural predators because our fish are wary of their unusual appearance. This year's divers saw clouds of lionfish on the reef. Burge did his best to make a dent in the population, catching 18 lionfish to win the division. McInnes also added a category for the heaviest lobster, which Attic and his crew, Sandra Vitoles, won by locating an underwater limestone ledge with about 60 lobsters of all size, Attic grabbed a 14.3-pounder and Vittles a 12.3-pounder. Female lobsters are currently carrying eggs, Vittles said, so they hunted the males, which are identifiable by their furry legs. I personally would love to have a 14-pound-3 <laughs> <Yes>. lobster. <laughs> a 14-pound lobster at the Martins up here would probably set you back, what, 80, 90 bucks easy? Yeah, I'd even take the 12-pounder. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Is is that like a turkey? I mean, do you have to, like, baste it and roast it? All I know is I sure do taste good. Especially with butter. Lots of butter. 
Well, that's it. Uh, the book caught my attention was there scuba divers involved, and some of them were going after lionfish. So that seems to be a thread or a theme going on recently is getting those lionfish as much as we can out of the environment. I know some of the charters are encouraging you know, people to spear lionfish, um, and all with the the groupers. Um, I think it's not just a matter of their unusual appearance. I think that when the lion now I could be wrong on this, maybe someone in the chat room will correct me on this, but uh, I think that when they're alive, they have spines which make them uncomfortable to be to be eaten. But when they're dead, the spines lay back. And they're able to be eaten because I've heard stories about divers that they'll they'll spear the lionfish and the grouper will take the lionfish off the spear, but the grouper wants nothing to do with it when it's still alive. So oh hmm, I, I hadn't heard that, but that's an interesting take. And as always, if anybody wants to drop us a line to explain some of this, you can send us an email at the show at scubaobsessed.com. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. Uh, even message us on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed. And we have a scuba diving facility that is open near Lubbock, and it is claiming to be one of the largest in the state and also the United States. Southwest Aqua Sports Facility has two pools opening during three years of construction, well, opening after three years of construction. Two of the owners, Chad and Rachel, say, say the facility is the largest in the region, one of the largest in the United States. couple has been teaching scuba diving for 15 years Selling swim and scuba gear in Lubbock, they had a dream of their own to open a large facility where they could teach scuba diving classes. Chad says the hobby of scuba diving is popular in the South Plains because people love to travel. Chad, one of the scuba instructors, has been at more than 6,000 dives around the world. The location will employ 15 different scuba instructors from Lubbock and was that level land as well as more than 35 employees the two indoor pools are for open swim swim competition training lessons membership scuba training therapy classes too the businesses even local schools acquire about using the facilities to start up swim teams for high school students crews are finishing up preparations the grand opening which is saturday july 23rd which has happened by the time you listen to this street swimming is available for the whole family employees are providing snacks and free Aquathong events during that grand opening. Uh, Southwest Aquasports two spools, two spools, two pools are sanitized using UV lights instead of chlorine, which allows less damaging option for skin and hair. Now I've got my hot tub has that UV light, but I, I can't believe that UV light alone would do it. Uh, they don't say for a saltwater pool. That's another thing that's become popular, and some of the training is using saltwater pools, and then they can use a system that actually creates chlorine from the saltwater, but. Uh, they don't give us any any stats backing it up. To me, this just looks like a large pool. Uh, you know, keeping the pool is big business. Keeping the pool, pool is big business. There, I you know if it's. I'd be surprised if they were giving us bad stats. I know that it's like in Michigan, don't we have like all kinds of you know legal requirements about keeping your pool clean? <laughs> oh, you certainly. Yeah, you have to. It's a it's a public facility. You, you, there's certain requirements. But I, I hadn't heard that it was acceptable to go completely chlorine or chemical-free. Uh, so that would be interesting, or if that was just a matter of augmenting. A shipwreck rudder is being returned to GTM Research Reserve, the Iguana Tomoto Manitas GTM uh, Research Reserve, recently received an old rudder from the St. Augustine Lighthouse Marine Maritime Museum. In 2005, the piece of shipwreck was uncovered in 
Filano Beach Shore, just three miles from the reserve, said Michael Shirley, director of GTM. The rudder, which was a primary steering mechanism for large feet, uh, a ship is 12 feet long, weighs over several hundred pounds. Archaeologists suggested dates back to the 18th or early 19th century. Chuck uh, Mead, director of the Lighthouse Archaeological Marine Program, suggested that the burn marks near the top of the rudder could indicate it was lost during a ship fire. The rudder was sent to the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Maritime Museum in 2006 to undergo conservation procedure that installed a system of tubes to funnel a wood adhesive into the rudder to hold it together. Now housed in the Reserve's Environmental Education Center, the rudder was returned to make room for a new maritime research and education facility at St. Augustine Lighthouse and Maritime Museum. Future reserve, uh, reserve plans include building an interpretive display near the rudder featuring descriptive and historical information. Let me see if I can get a picture of this. It's, does, it, does that look like much of a rudder, Mac? Not really. <laughs> well, they, they say 12 feet long. I mean, that's, uh, you know, see, we're used to seeing rudders like this, you know, and much, much larger than this on, on different boats. I mean, yeah. Well, the one on the, on the iron sides, um, thinking pictures on that, isn't that close to 30 feet long? You know, I mean, uh, I think the one on the, you know, number five is, you know, approaching 50 feet long, you know, um, but that's because we're so spoiled by seeing these all the time, you know, I mean, yes. to the, to these folks who, uh, you know, don't see them very often, you know, like, Ooh, ah, it's a piece of a shipwreck, you know, and cause hey, we're, we're just spoiled. This, we, we, we tend to be. This, this is cool. This is cool that, that, that they're taking this much interest in a rudder. This is very cool building like an interpretive center. A rudder, a rudder. This, if they have that much interest in it, more power to them. Very cool. Certainly. It's like they have a conservation program for it. You know, they're, they're aware of how, you know, when the wood is taken out of the, the water, how it's going to uh, go to, you know, the splinters very quickly. So someone has uh, injecting a wooded adhesive into it there. Um, you know, hey, the, the, they're, they're going about this right. You know, I mean, we're just kind of surprised about seeing about simply a rudder, but, hey, they have the enthusiasm for it. Um, hopefully the public goes out and sees it. We should have a little bit more detail about the photo. That's not clear. Is this what condition it was in when they found it, or is this the condition today? It looks like it's outside. See concrete posts. So this is, looks to be an external display, and then they just have a easy up uh, over it for some reason. It's hard to say exactly, but apparently they've taken a great deal of interest in it. Good for them. You know, if it's uh, presented properly, I mean, I'm sure we've seen different. We've all been to the different museums where you know they had. A dose in there with enough enthusiasm to get the public interested in, in the, the piece on display, and sometimes it flies and sometimes it doesn't. There, so um, hope is working for him. Then Italy, they have a cannon from Napoleon's warship found off off the Italian coast. Italian Navy has released underwater video of a bronze cannon reportedly from the warship and Napoleon's fleet that was sank during naval battle with the British Royal Navy in March 1795. The battle is historically considered to be the first victory of Admiral, but then Captain Horatio Nelson. He was in command of the 64-gun HMS Armageddon. The battle took place in the Ligurian Sea. French warships were apparently sailing from Toulon heading to Corsica when they were intercepted by the British fleet. Using a mini-submarine, the Italian Navy ship Antio and divers from the Kumsubin Corp. started on Wednesday research and investigation activities on the ship on behalf of the Cultural Heritage Ministry. 
The second warship has been found at the beginning of the year in the waters facing Finale Ligre, and I'm probably slaughtering that, as you would expect, a northwest Italian coast. Italian authorities are currently evaluating future work to recover the wreck or parts of it. Local authorities from the province of Savona have issued a restrictive order to scuba divers in the waters above and surrounding the ship. And you can actually see good that they have a little bit of video on this article, which the article will be on the podcast website, www.scubaobsessed.com. And uh, we'll have a link to it so you can take a peek yourself. But that, that certainly looks like a cannon. A lot of times mm-hmm. when you see these cannons in salt water, they, they look more like a barnacle reef than they do anything else. Well, yeah, they get the uh, concretions on them. I'm kind of surprised this one doesn't have it like that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's odd. You can really see all the the markings on well, I don't know what you'd call them there, but you know when it's been cast, it has ribs and things in it there, and you can see that. Uh, it makes you wonder if this is actual footage here. Well, I've I've seen that some of it depends on the depth. That the depth has a lot to do with it, and I know in the Baltic Sea. They've actually found that there's a sloshing effect of tides and currents so that the, the dead layer that's down below will sometimes come up, and they've found wrecks fairly well-preserved at depths much shallower than what's normally accustomed to. Hmm. Okay. Uh, but I don't know about I don't know anything specifically on this location as to how that is. But like you said, it's you, you look at that, and you can tell that's, a, that's a, definitely a cannon. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I know. There's a, a traveling exhibit on the uh, Widya, which was a uh, pirate ship, went down off of uh, what was it, uh, Cape Cod, actually. And um, when they they found that using a magnetometer, located the cannons in the in the hold. Apparently, they, they had 60 cannons below decks, using them for ballast. But when they brought bring these cannons up, you know they're encased in you know, sediment, you know, they call it concretions, and there's, you know, a large chemical process to get the concretions off of them. It doesn't look at all like you can when they bring it up. Um, but, you know, yeah, it must just be something, a difference in the, there's something in the water, apparently. That's some, something about this particular location and that particular cannon, the combination is it's in really good condition. And I'm assuming that they didn't do any sort of restoration work on the bottom trying to clean it up. And then how about this for a find? Uh, divers discover a 340-year-old dairy product in a shipwreck. Researchers compared the scent of the mixture of yeast and a type of unpasteurized cheese called Rofort. That's R-O-Q-U-E-F-O-R-T. So I may not quite have the pronunciation exactly right. The stinky cheese. It, that, that's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said the ship, which is the Swedish royal vessel Krona, in 1980, ship had been a variable treasure trove of archaeological finds from gold coins to pharmaceuticals to brain tissue belonging to members of the ship's doomed crew. Underwater, underwater archaeologists found some stunning stuff in the wreck, but recently divers announced they may have their stinkiest discovery yet, which was that 340-year-old cheese. It's a pretty good guess that's some kind of dairy product, and we think it's cheese. This according to Kalmar County Museum researcher Lars Inresun. Uh, the Kronun has sat in the bottom of the Baltic Sea off Sweden's coast since 1679 when the warship was sunk during a battle against Denmark and the Netherlands. A decade since, the ship was rediscovered. Archaeologists uncovered tens of thousands of 17th century artifacts and to this day continue to dig up new tidbits. Well, uh, they say cheese must be aged. Come on, I mean, it's yeah. well-aged cheese. 
It seems like you could find somebody for that. I mean, could you do like a fundraiser? Uh, you have like a little cracker and some cheese, you know, do some bidding. I really want to consume that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Did you read the rest of the article, by the way? Uh, they were talking about in 2014, an Irish chef sampled a taste of an ancient lump of bog butter found preserved in peat for thousands of years. We had a, uh, something talk about the bog butter just a few years ago. A, yes, few, a few a few episodes ago. So, yeah, I, a bog butter is another one I put on there of things I don't want to eat. Uh, pretty much anything that used to be on that show, Fear Factor, uh, would, would be in that group. Bog butter and now uh, the Roquefort cheese on a shipwreck. Uh, and they said polar scientists working in Greenland came across a still edible cache of military rations from an expedition 60 years earlier. The cheese from the Krona is being kept at low temperatures to keep it from rapidly decaying while researchers study to see if it was made from and what 17th century sailors aboard the ship may have eaten. I think it smells quite nice because I like exotic food, uh, says uh, Aaron Sun, uh, but I would not want to taste it. Quite nice. I'm, I'm not quite sure what that really <laughs> right. means. Everybody else says stinky. Is, is that kind of like when somebody farts in a room and everybody just kind of has to smell it? Is that kind of, is he one of those people? I don't know. I can tell you he's – I'm not planning on diving with that guy. Okay. <laughs> or at least buddy breathing. That, that might not be good either. Yeah. So, um. And Canadian Coast Guard uh, has discovered a shipwreck off Nova Scotia coast. Wait for this one to load. Preliminary research reveals the fragments could belong to a ship built in Sweden in 1877. Well, that's a nice little, that looks kind of like the bow of Max wreck right there, doesn't it? Uh, Canadian Coast Guard uncovered several large wooden fragments the ship believed to date back to the 19th century. Um, they're pulled off the ocean floor on the coast south of Yarmouth. According to David Jennings, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, CCGS Alfred Needler was conducting dragging operations off George's Bank as part of the annual fish survey conducted by the DFQ. Now, you know, looking at that. That is a very heavy built ship. Yeah, and that's that. Those are. I'm I'm guessing by the shape of that, that's uh, it's in that curved arc. That that is a uh, something towards the stern on that first picture, and then the other one looks like there's some sort of round. Uh, remember, my dad walking along the beach years ago found something similar to this. Round round shapes like that just don't seem to be natural. So you want to that somebody put those in for a reason. Uh, the fourth shot is pretty good. It shows how it was constructed using wooden pegs. Yes. Yeah. Well, that certainly will help them date it. Wooden pegs or iron pegs? These are those. Well. Well, the one on the right looks like it's split near the top. Mm-hmm. I see that. Yeah. But the one to the left of it looks like it's got uh, discoloration on the top from oxidation. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, they said Orion was one vessel that piqued their interest. It was built in Sweden in 1877. It was from Maritimes in 1905, loaded with salt from Spain, bound for St. John, where it courted bad weather and ended up being towed to Halifax. In 1906, the ship was named the Marion Sea, part of the British fleet. Then it sprang a leak, sailing from Bridgeport, Nova Scotia, to New York. It sank in the general location of the wreck was discovered by the Coast Guard. Makes you wonder how much of that uh, ship still exists because I'm sure you guys are aware about the uh, you know how they, they have the worms in the salt water that consume yeah. the wood. It doesn't last a long time. 
Yeah, they, they don't, and you can see where this is probably in a mixture of being buried and exposed because you can see certain amounts of very heavily decayed and others fairly well preserved. So I'm assuming the preserved sections were in a low oxygen type of sediment in the bottom and the others were where they were getting action and, like mm-hmm. you said, the worms. Yeah. Well, and like, you know, the ends, at least on that picture, like the, the ends to the left edge of the picture, they certainly look to be, you know, whether rounded like that, they probably were, um, you know, eroded away by the worms there on the, whereas the right side, they're, you know, kind of jagged and severe. So it's, you know, yeah, you're, you're right. I'm sure that it was partially buried in, and that's why we have stuff over the left today. It doesn't take the worms a long time to eat the wood up, you know, within the, uh, Titanic had been down. See what down nineteen twelve found what was it nineteen eighty six so it had been down for a little over seventy years and I know uh, Doctor Robert Ballard was crushed to find that the uh, the grand staircase had already been eaten and was gone at that point. So, oh yeah, so seventy years at that depth, you know, approaching approaching two miles deep, um, you know, they had taken the the staircase out. So they're 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 pretty hungry. <laughs> they they don't waste any time. No, you're in an environment where you don't necessarily get a chance for a lot of dinner. So when opportunity presents itself, you take advantage of it. So Now, the next two articles we have are talking about a Michigan town. One was in the from the BBC article, and the other one was from an NPR article. But amazingly have the same picture, so I'm guessing they came from the, the same source. So they're referring to is a, a town, Michigan town has been revived by the Marine Sanctuary. So they're talking about Alpena, Michigan, and the sanctuary is the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary and is one of those that, and actually that sounds like a trip the club needs to make, uh, would be up there to Thunder Bay because we've, we've done quite a bit throughout the state, but we never seem to quite get there. And forgive me, Darren, but I'm, I'm going to plug that area. Um, I've, I've, I've dove that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, that was the first area that I went scuba diving. Um, the visibility up there—it's uh, mostly uh, a gravel sand bottom. So, you know, I know when I was on the Mount Hansett, um, they get visibility better than forty foot, and it, that was on a very you know windy, blustery day as well. Mount Hansett's only like fifteen feet deep. Uh, you know, you see pictures all the time of people having you know a hundred foot visibility in that area. Um, and the wrecks are just everywhere. Um, true, you've got to go a little ways offshore to get to the real pristine ones. Um, you know, I know that the ones that are right there near the river mouth, visibility gets very much challenged in that area. But uh, just look at the map, what's there, and you know, and then go to YouTube. You know, any wreck that catches your eye in sport depth, go to YouTube and you'll find videos on it. And say, hey, this is something I, something I want to see. You know, and you don't necessarily have to go that far offshore. You know, if you're willing to go five miles offshore, um, I'm sure there are a dozen good wrecks that you can hit out there. Um, you know, anything from snorkelable depth, um, like, oh, what is it, uh, Scanlon's Barge. You can't actually touch a snorkel snorkeling, but you can see it very well snorkeling. Um, I think the picture they have here, this one is um, off the Shamrock. And... Uh, that's one which they show on the on the cruise. There's a uh, a tour that comes out of there with a glass bottom boat, and they show you the shipwrecks. Um, and it's the best thirty bucks a head you're going to spend in Alpena, I'll tell you. Um, if you're in the area, 
do these. <laughs> these are very cool. Yeah, I I love I love the photos I've seen of it. I I just need to get up there. So well, it's, it's one of those on my bucket list. And it's not as far as the one I'm using, although I gather the group that owns the one I'm using also on on this tour as well. Um, but it's quite a bit. It's in my opinion, you know, with the Bermuda being, you know, there's kind of the, the record choice there for the uh, one on a Munising, you know, that tour there is, um, that's a phenomenal tour as well. Um, you know, I, I prefer the one on Munising, but this one is half the distance. <laughs> so, yeah. And they also have, there's a, a nice, you know, shipwreck museum there. Um, you know, they have a lot of ongoing shipwreck research done by NOAA in that area. Um, anybody who's into shipwrecks, you know, diver, snorkeler, historian, just someone who likes maritime history, you know, take a trip to Alpena. You know, uh, it's well worth it. It's well worth it. And that does it for the news articles. We have one more last little bit. I got it in the potentially cool scuba gear category, but the way they list it is you might not even need any gear at all. This is a new dry combat submersible to carry troop to missions area scuba free. Nice size. U.S. Special Forces are in for a drier time. Lockheed Martin and Submersible Group has signed a $166 million contract to supply the U.S. Special Operations Commands with a new class of combat submarines based on the Lockheed S-30LI and the S-302 commercial submersibles. Dry combat submersibles replaces the current fleet of swimmer delivery vehicles with a new design that allows soldiers to travel inside the vessel. So it holds up to three 30-ton DCS uh, vehicles that are contracted to build will allow war fighters to travel deeper and further underwater than they can today. Instead of sitting in the open, the passengers sit dry, uh, shirt-sleeve environment as a vessel brings closer to the destination than the other type. You know what this looks like? It's just an extremely large decompression chamber. You know, that or... Kind of reminds me of the Hunley. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> well, they are kind of they're sitting at uh, the Hunley uh, submarine that uh, off South Carolina that was found and it was a Confederate vessel and they would sit sideways and crank it and in the photo they've got uh, at least six seats that are sitting sideways so you can envision a crank there and you can be propelling yourself. Of course, you know what happened to the guys in the Hunley. So yeah, yeah they, uh, more than once. Uh, yeah, they, several. They, yeah. They, they didn't make it. Yeah, it had to be pretty small to fit in that one too. Yeah, this one's a, a tad bit bigger. Uh, it'll be thirty-one feet long, seven and a half feet a beam, or nine point three six meters, or two point three four meters, with a crane weight of twenty-eight thousand pounds, or thirteen one hundred kilograms. Carry two pilots, six passengers, have a depth rating of three hundred twenty-eight feet, or hundred meters which means it's probably really about 900 feet and 3,000 meters. Lockout depth of 93 feet, 30 meters, and a top speed of 5 knots, uh, 6 miles an hour, or 9 kilometers an hour. So what do they mean when they say a lockout depth? So is that like at before 93, 98 feet, you could actually get out of the vessel, but then at that point it seals it in? I'm not. I'm just not familiar with that term. I'm thinking, yeah, probably at that depth, it's well, like when you're in the, the hyperbaric chamber, you know, like we'll go for the chamber ride. You know, it's um, it's sealed by the pressure. It probably has uh, a similar engineering idea here that uh, that depth of 98 feet. You know, it's um, 
because I'm because I'm sure this is a a one atmosphere vessel. You know, this is not something to be pressurized and nothing to do with, with with decompression or anything on it. So yeah, I'm sure. My guess would be 98 feet is where it seals, and uh, you're 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 not getting out of it at that point. So yeah, yeah. You know, I'm betting the doors open out in it. You know, the, the, the doors must open out so that the pressure actually helps it to seal, and it's considered sealed at 98 feet. That's my guess. Well, that does it for Scuba News. Let's see, did I miss anybody in the chat room? And what we're going to start doing is if you donate to our Patreon account at any of the levels above a dollar, uh, you will get the show notes in advance, and it'll make it a little bit easier. You won't have to follow along. So uh, we'll start posting those as of this next week. You'll be able to see the show notes on the Patreon account. And if you want to get to Patreon, just follow the link from our website, scubaobsessed.com. Oh, here's Dave. Dave, a military guy. He says, employing swimmers from depth usually done on typical subs. The lockout chamber is flooded and pressurized to ambient to let them out. Swimmers return, chambers pressurized, reduce back to one atmosphere, then pump dry to allow reentry to the sub. So I'm guessing, Dave, that that means that's a depth, the maximum depth at which that can happen is at that uh, 98 feet. So one of, the, one of the nice things about having a chat room. Well, we need to look at that. I mean, that's some very valuable input there. Uh, I'm not sure this vessel is designed to have people uh, exiting it. Well, what they, they, you could actually do, which is the, how the old subs would have worked, is that the, they were wet subs, so you'd just leave the vessel. So maybe they've got a dual mission, and that's why they have a lockout depth. Yeah, and that's what he said, yes. Well, something else we want to talk about over the next two or three weeks, we will be talking about shipwrecks and shipwreck dive. And we had somebody in our Facebook page. Let me see if I can give them credit. Uh, they asked about wreck diving and how to go about it and want some tips. So I thought it would be appropriate to put some together. It's a nice topic. It's something that we like this time of year. All winter seems to be when we dream about hunting for shipwrecks, but we actually get to do it in the the summer season. Uh, So I thought we would take a broad look at that, at this topic, and go kind of front to back on what it takes to hunt for shipwrecks. Uh, Mac, you, you started off with some notes. Did you want to cover what what you had put out there? I just did a quick little synopsis when somebody talks about shipwreck hunting. So I'll just read what I wrote to you. That's probably the easiest. Okay, shipwreck hunting, what is it? Well, most people think of it as treasure-filled ships, chests of gold and piles of priceless china, cannons, huge anchors, mysterious ships lost from view, and you, the fearless explorer, finding them. So the question is then, why hunt for shipwrecks? And the answer would be is, what is? You know, and why do you do that? Is it simply to explore a shipwreck, to be the first person to locate something from history? Or is it to learn about the history and the persons that sailed it? Is it to recover property for a person or a company? Uh, are you going to be a salvor or a wrecker, a treasure hunter, or even an archaeologist? And my own little addition about that, archaeologists, though, usually don't fund their own research. They got somebody else's money. Which is always nice. So so the first thing that you're saying, just to kind of recap, is that you're talking about what is your motivation for finding this, for finding a wreck, and, and what are you looking for? Right. And when you do that, though, the first thing is required, you know, that's required in, in shipwreck hunting is you really need to determine if you have the time, the money, the dedication, and persistence to do serious hunting. Now, you're talking Ballard and people like that. 
people like us, we still need that aspect, but we're not going to the same extremes looking for the Titanic. Right, right. You've got you've got different scales, and part of it has to be where you are, what's appropriate for the location. Um, so the first thing would be, as I look, there's 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 two ways of uh, approaching a shipwreck if you're if that's what you want to find. One is just saying I want to find out whatever's out here, and I'm hoping there's a shipwreck there. The other would be to actually do some sort of research so that you narrow the field and you actually go intentionally looking for something. The number one item you're going to have to do if you're serious about it is just what you said, research. In-depth research and detail and planning are required to be successful. And again, your first item, most people will say, is libraries are the leading sources of information, the least expensive, but very time-consuming, because you're going to have to perform detailed reviews of historical records, books, and even follow up on rumors and hearsay to get down to the nitty-gritty, to the facts. Well, that's that's all true, but I don't think it's quite as difficult as um, coming across there. Um, you know, I, granted, in the past, you know, we had to actually you know, go to the library and you know, leaf through lots of old newspapers, um, you know, and other per- you know, periodicals and genealogy reports and things. Um, you know, it was extremely time-consuming. Um, today, you know, uh, now granted, you know, only a, sm- a very minuscule portion of what's available has been digitized, but more and more of those newspapers are being digitized every day. Uh, you can do a keyword search for, you know, a shipwreck, a uh, ship that's missing, and you do that keyword search every week, and you're going to come up with different results every week, and new things will pop up just because more and more is constantly added to the, you know, the digital record, um, you know, granted, there are a lot of things you have to do, the, you know, the old fashioned way, you know, if you want to get the weather reports, you know, from a hundred years ago, you know, you're going to have to go to national archives for that, for that kind of stuff. When I say references in libraries, I meant the same item. Some people may not have access to the computers, mm-hmm. the libraries, you can go ahead and do that same research like you're talking about, but there are cer- certain items you're still going to have to go to like Bowling Green. We've been there for research because you can look up the actual prints, mm-hmm. and not that I'm aware that you can find them on the line yet for the Chikora, for example. Mm-hmm. But, but the computer is probably going to be your first, your first place, and and you're going to access library files. And you know, and even if the computer doesn't give you, you know, the information you need to go out and find that rack, you're going to learn in a, in an evening of keyword searches on your computer you're going to rule out an awful lot. You're going to learn so much more about what happened with that wreck than what, you know, you, you heard. Um, because, you know, most people, they don't go out looking just to find any wreck. You know, there's a specific one they want to find. There's something which, you know, their, their grandfather was on or, um, you know, they remember hearing the stories as a child or, you know, that there's something significant about that wreck which makes them want to find that particular one. And just spending an evening on the computer and as you do it, you you kind of get an eye for keywords, you know. Um, you know, and it's not just a matter of knowing the boat's name, you know. Um, you know, if you can find out, you know, the, the name of the captain, um, some prominent people on the boat, um, you know, you find a lot of stuff in obituaries. Uh, you know, find a grave, you know. Um, you know, particularly the Great Lakes during you know the peak of you know times when boats were wrecking, you know, the the late nineteenth uh, century. Uh, unless you were like near Milwaukee, Detroit, Chicago, 
you know, it was, it was, it was pretty rural. And you didn't have, you know, really detail-oriented newspapers in the, around. So often you, you will find, I mean, I, I was really surprised looking for stuff for on the Alpina, finding that um, a lot of information was out of Seattle and places on the West Coast because there were a number of people with, you know, prominence from that area in their obituaries carried some pretty good information on the Alpina. Now, Alpina has not been found, um, but a wealth of information is out there about it. Um, will it be found? Well, it's pretty deep from what I understand. <laughs> Probably not, at least, at least not by us. Research so, is important. I think the other item, though, I, I listed as funding. Do you have the money as hunting is expensive? How much is your time worth? What's the cost of staff, a boat, maintenance for the boat, uh, search equipment with this calibration and maintenance? So, again, the magnitude, the scale of your search helps determine how much funding you're going to need. I think probably the other one is time is going to be a big commitment. And will your family and your job support the time you want to take to go look for something? Well, you know, a lot of us just kind of look at, at what, you know, you're able to put into it. You know, I mean, if you're, you know, I'm not quite sure the, the context of, um, you know, basically who is looking for this, this shipwreck. Are we talking about uh, an organization that wants to find this, this shipwreck and, they, and they, they have the manpower and the, and the people and, you know, the resources to do this? Or are we talking about that, hey, we have a listener here whose uh, grandma told them a story about, you know, great grandpa going down on this boat and now our listener is a diver and would like to, would like to find this boat and what would be involved with that and is it feasible you know uh what you know some of these boats that have gone down you know they went down in hundreds of feet of water so i mean even if it's found you know um you know sport diving depth maximum depth for 95 percent of the divers out there is 130 feet you know you get into tech and now you're talking depths where you know it's Quite possible, possible to reach depths exceeding 300. Uh, you know, I think the world record on scuba is close to a thousand feet. Um, that's not something that's, that's done regularly by any means, though. You know, they had scuba divers on the Fitzgerald. Um, you know, it's it's possible, but then finding people that are going to do it, um, you know, willing to take the risk, the training, the expense involved, that's another story. So there there are. As Mac has mentioned, there are a tremendous number of variables here in how worthwhile it is to, to look for this wreck. But if you have the passion and you want to find this wreck, um, it's much more attainable today than it was, say, 20 years ago. You know, just with, with the Internet, with um, the availability of side-scan sonar to the public now. Now, granted, you know, what we are using, which we buy off the shelf at a sporting goods store, um does not compare to what the professionals are using. Um, there are, you know, there are some tweaks that you can make out there, which uh, can greatly improve the, you know, the unit's ability. But uh, you know, we're not, we're not on par with with Ballard, or you know, I mean, even what Cousteau was using in in the seventies. You know, there are things which can be done, and if you have an idea that a wreck is out there, go find it. <laughs> you know, we'd we'd love to have more dive sites. You know, I mean, these are all time capsules here. If you don't feel it's in your ability to find it, share the story with someone someone who might be able to. I mean, there are plenty of organizations that are interested in finding shipwrecks. You know, I mean, you've got um, oh, or Milwaukee, you've got Great Lake Shipwreck Explorers. You know, the big big guys in our area are um, Michigan, shipwreck, Michigan Shipwreck Research Association. 
You know, you've got a number of them based around Lake Erie, you know, Lake Huron. You know, these things should be found. You know, if, if you have an idea, hey, let's let's go find it, you know. But it's not that easy, as Max says. You know, you've got, you know, a lot of time commitment involved. You know, I mean, we've gone out with our little side scan and tried to find things. And, uh, yeah, when you see it done in the documentaries, you know, they make it look pretty easy. You know, that they talk about the time involved. But, uh, you know, running those straight lines... You know, making sure you have the proper overlap in your scans and you're accounting for, you know, I mean, with our with our little amateur equipment, you know, weather affects us dramatically. I guess it even affect, it affects the big guys, too. But it, but it can be done, but particularly if you start looking at ones in the inland bodies of water, you know, because uh, then you have a much more defined search area. You know, our little over-the-counter side scan units can, you know, can do it in the you know in inland body of water. You know, um, you know it's much shallower you know our you know we, we can look up to 100 feet of water pretty decently it takes a trained eye to know what you're looking at you know the technology is there you know you, you can walk into a sporting goods store and for less than a thousand dollars walk out with a unit that you can find shipwrecks with i know because i've done it you know i mean uh no it's not that easy you guys you have a boat to put it on too or a kayak even mac has run his side scan off his kayak with a great deal of success with that you don't have to be a big organization to find shipwrecks. Oh, yeah, it helps. <laughs> but moms and pops can do it, too. So across the range of hunting, you have, I've, I've heard of some old school techniques. Uh, Mac, you probably uh, have seen more of these than I have where somebody used to just take two boats, run a line between them, and drag the line across the bottom until it snags something and dive the snag. Yeah, that's a simple way. It works. So you've got that. Another is to get leads from your local fishermen. You know, there's nothing like finding their honey holes where they tend to find fish because in Lake Michigan, at least, uh, shipwrecks, we have a big sandy bottom. It looks like a, a desert, and then a shipwreck on it sticks up from the bottom, and fish like to congregate. So those honey holes that the fishermen have that they don't want to tell anybody about also may be the shipwreck that you're looking for. So that, that makes it easier. Somebody can give you a can narrow it down. Also, sometimes the shipwrecks we're looking for have been discovered, and we just want to go dive on them again. I would say most of the shipwrecks that, that we dive on have been lost and found several times over the years. Yeah, GPS yeah. has made a big difference in being able to go back to the location. Yes. Yeah, the, the old days you had Loran, which Loran was you had beacons at the end of the piers or on a structure near uh, an outlet or a bay, and then you would take your signal and you do some some form of triangulation, and you could have two boats have two completely d- different Loran numbers. So if somebody had a number and their unit died and they bought a new unit, uh, they could be a couple hundred feet off when they try to go back to that. And as we've seen, even with GPS numbers, you can be 20 feet off and not find what you're looking for. Yeah, but GPS is a lot more reproducible than mm-hmm. Loran. Oh, Many GPSs, particularly the handheld units, you know, do have a calibration feature in them. You want to make sure that your GPS is properly calibrated. Yeah. You know, I had a lot of frustration with one that I had, only to find out the calibration was 400 feet off. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes a real difference. Well, that's true. Yeah, 400 feet off is, is a lot. But the, one of the complaints that we have heard people, and, and GPS has gotten better over the years. There used to be a built-in error where you could be 20, 30 feet off even with the exact same number. 
And since the military has declassified some of this technology, it's gotten out to a routinely within a couple feet. But what I've noticed is when do you take that GPS number when you're writing it down is you want to be exactly over the wreck where you would drop the anchor is where you take the numbers. Frequently, we've determined that when we find a number that we think is off, it's because the people who took the number took it at anchor, meaning they dropped the anchor on the wreck. They laid, they did their scope of their line, which could be two, 300 feet on a 50 foot wreck, 50 foot deep wreck. And now they're 300 feet off to the south. If next time you come and the wind's coming a different direction, you're going to be that distance plus some the other direction. And you've just got to do a whole lot of hunting to, to find your shipwreck. Mm-hmm. Well, then you also have issues with um, you know, GPS numbers. You know, some GPS, people have their GPS set up minutes and seconds. Yes. And other, others, it's decimal. You know, often you can look at it, pairs of figures don't go over 60, then most likely you are in minutes and seconds. Maybe just the particular numbers for that wreck, nothing went over pairs of 60. It's kind of a, it's, it, there's some guessing to it. But if you are competent enough to, to dive a shipwreck, um, you should be able to work your way through that. Um, you know, even if you have it wrong, you're only off by a couple hundred feet. And most people who are diving shipwrecks have some kind of a bottom finder. So, you know, that, okay, you're not, hopefully not bouncing the uh, sand wreck, as we call it. Where there's nothing down there. Um, you know, you see it on your graph, and that's what, that's what you go for. Okay, I, I found the actual post of what prompted us on this topic. It's from Dave Olson on our Facebook page. He said, could you guys talk more about how you go about finding shipwrecks? What kind of equipment you use, search techniques, etc." I live on the Chequamanon Bay of Lake Superior, C-H-E-Q-U-A-M-E-G-O-N, Bay of Lake Superior, and I have interest in looking for stuff to dive on. I know oh, at least two wrecks right in the bay, but the locations are not confirmed, and I'd like to find them, and who knows how many cars, snowmobiles, etc. Thanks. Oh, he's Chequamanon area. That, that's, that, that's Whitefish Point area. Oh, that area is loaded with shipwrecks. Um well, if he wants to go out and find them, that's great. Um, you know, he can find a lot of them, you know, just by looking at the preserves websites and, you know, the, the numbers are right there. If he wants to go out and find new ones. I know that area has been dove a great deal. Don't know how much side skin has been done on that area. You know, it's kind of isolated up there. But he, but he wants to go out and find shipwrecks himself. Can I use the brand name, Darren? Yeah, you can use a brand name. We don't. All right. You know, you, you want a hummingbird. You know, you, uh, Pick one up at your local sporting goods shop. You know, you want to make sure that you get the one that has the uh, the side imaging technology. You know, the, the the different brands use different wording for it. You know, side scan, side image. I'm not sure. I think Lawrence calls it something different there. But basically, you want eyes, you know, sonar eyes looking sideways. Uh, and you want that it sits, you know, it's actually doing the imaging, not just simply the bottom finding like you do on a fish finder. Yeah, you're going to pay a little extra for one of those things. Um, you know, the you know the one that I'm using, I felt really good about paying um, almost $1,300 for it. It 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 shows a nice picture of the bottom. You know, it, it shows the contours and the reliefs. And when you go over a target, you can get an idea of, you know, if it's resting flat on the bottom or if it's coming off the bottom. A lot of this is a matter of getting, you know, used to reading these things. And there are all kinds of blogs and web pages and, you know, Groups that are doing this, 
I know the clue over on Lake Huron uses one of these things. That's how they found, uh, what was that toxic barge they found last year? You know, oh, the um, one. You talking about the one that was leaking or? Yeah. Yeah. The one that had all that, was it, was it butane or something like something like butane in there? It was, uh, but you know, they, they found that with a hummingbird. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at what you, you know, when you go over a known wreck with a hummingbird, you know, I mean, you're, you're looking at a boat, you know, there's one up in uh, Reed's Lake up in Grand Rapids. That's a, a beautiful target hummingbird, 45 feet. And, you know, you can tell you're looking at the bow, the stern, the boiler, what, I mean, you, you, you know what you're looking at a boat. You know, there are some drawbacks to these units. You know, um, the range is quite limited. Um, you know, you have a pretty good blind spot right underneath you. So overlap is really a concern on them. But, you know, if you have an idea, there's something out there. You know, also Google Earth is a great tool. I know that because uh, I've, I've dove up there in uh, Tacoman Bay area, well, Whitefish Bay, well, the area around the Tacoman River mouth, right there, and it's very shallow. There's a shelf that goes out a long ways. You know, I'm, I imagine Google Earth. I'm not sure what the detail is up there for Google Earth, but that would be a great way to look for wrecks up there. You know, and you see something looks interesting. You go out with your hummingbird and take a look at it with the scanner. If it looks like it looks like a wreck, you do a splash and look at it for real. You know, but, but that's just basically going to a very potentially dense area for wrecks and looking, you know. You know, if you want to find a specific wreck, you know, there's the uh, oh, the Great Lakes Shipwreck File. You know, there's a lot of information out there by Brendan Ballad. You know, he's made a lot of his information out there very easy to find. You know, and you'll, you'll know where these boats went down. The files are searchable by, you know, years and types of boats and so there's a, a few search engines out there to make you know make those files much more user friendly um get an idea what's missing in that area and uh if once you have names of boats that are missing in that area you know you can uh, start doing those keywords which i was talking about on, online um it also really really helps doing the keyword searches if you can find the historical name of an area um when a boat goes down you know it's used like you know, it's listed as going down off of something point, you know, like uh, oh, Pyramid Point. There's a boat off of there off, off by Glen, Glen Arbor. It's the, the Rising Sun. Yeah, it's off of Pyramid Point. But if you can find the historical name of that area, you know, what that, what that particular neighborhood was called when these boats may have gone down, that's where it's going to show up in the old articles. You know, now you've got boat name, area date um you've got what you need for doing keyword searches and i'm not saying you're going to get a hit every time you know a lot of times we were talking very rural areas and these things didn't even get written up when they went down you know they just went missing and they went and you know they said it went here based upon you know a survivor story or a witness you know there's often good information sometimes very sketchy information but so you know, you, you, you're going to have to learn to disseminate the quality information you're looking at because, you know, you're going to get a lot of stuff comes back at you. And frankly, a lot of those old articles, you know, they they were written to sell copy. You know, they sensationalize. Um, you know, when we look at some of the weather reports, you know, in the newspapers and compare them to what actually happened, it's not even close. And, and so then they do the same thing with the, you know, the reports of casualties and the intensity of the storm. And so unless you're looking at something written by like a lighthouse keeper or a uh, lifesaver, a coast guard, you know, an official, 
be ready for it to be really biased to be sensationalized. But you have to work with what you have. That's frankly probably why a lot of directions will never be found. It's just because the information out there is faulty on them. And we're looking in the completely the wrong areas. I know uh, when when Harry Zyke went after uh, Lady Elgin, you know, he had to disregard a lot of what people believed out there and go back and fall back on fact. That pays off. He found the Lady Elgin, and uh, which was arguably the most historically significant shipwreck, at least in that portion of the lake anyway. Yeah, and, and, and the time factor that Mac talks about, you know, um, you know, I, I've got a half a dozen irons in the fire right now. You, you can't have the mentality that you're going to go out and find it this week or next week. I mean, you look at the finds of a lot of these big wrecks, and, you know, people dedicated years to find these things. And, you know, that was their driving passion for years. It's kind of hard to burn that, you know, to, to keep that flame burning. What I do is that, you know, I have a half a dozen possibilities, and I'll work a little bit at this one, and I'll work a little bit at that one. These stories, they unfold slowly. Someone you'll talk to, you know, will come back to you later on with more information, or you'll think about it in the back of your mind and have another, another, another angle to revisit it at. You know, m- most of us who, you know, are working 40 hours a week and have families and kids and got to get the kid to the ball game, you know, just can't devote, you know, years of our life to finding a shipwreck. You know, there are some that can do it, and, you know, the, 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 those guys do it. But, you know, for the rest of us doing a 9 to 5 someplace, just we kind of got a pencil into the corner someplace, and we have some extra time to go look. You know, with patience, a little insight, a little bit of luck, you know, they do show up. Um, you know, I've actually had my best information come from personal interviews, talking to people. You hear books there, talk to the locals. Information may be good, information may be bad. They may not know. It doesn't hurt, and it certainly uh, enhances the outing. You know, this is a social exercise. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, if you think there's something in a lake, I've found that um, posting on Facebook in that neighborhood, uh, you'll find that... Um, most communities, like, will have, like, a vanished Kalamazoo or a vanished Grand Rapids. There's some kind of a, of a Facebook page around that's, um, you know, based upon that area's local history. Most of them are open pages. You go to them and, you know, start a thread about, hey, you know, I've heard about a boat here. And make sure that you put some information in, too. You've got to, if people are going to share information, you've got to, you, you have to share yours as well. You can't, you know, don't have to give them everything you know, but, you know, be fair with this here. And you want to put enough out there also to, to kind of, you know, to hook your audience in somewhat. You know, I've had a fair amount of luck, you know, looking for boats out in Gull Lake, you know, posting on um, Gull Lake Sandbar uh, Facebook page or, um, you know, there are any, most any large lake, um, or, or Lakeshore community is going to have a Facebook page about their history. And, yeah, you know, three-quarters of the information you get is going to be, well, probably more like 95% of what you get is not going to apply. But it doesn't need to. That 5% is what's going to get you there. So, you know, cast a wide net. Use lots of resources, be it the Internet, Facebook, um, Google searching, um, you know, and, but don't forget about the libraries. You know, uh, what Mac was mentioning earlier, you know, good old-fashioned research. And librarians are 
awesome. Um, people don't realize this. I mean, uh, uh, they are just phenomenally helpful. Um, I love librarians. I mean, I'll, I'll call an area, you know, like I call the library up in, uh, Grand Haven, the, the Laudit, um, center there. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking for a boat in your area. And, you know, I think it's off of this property and these are the dates and, um, you know, anything you can help me out would, would be very much appreciated. If you'd like to have your name mentioned, if I find this thing, certainly I would do that. Um, you know, what do you have? By the time you get there, they're going to have a table devoted to you with all kinds of reference information, reference information, genealogy reports, um, grad student projects on the stuff in the area. Um, there's just, there's going to be a table there just for you. Make sure you do show up, by the way, okay? Don't make them look best up for, for nothing. But, I mean, the material's there, and that's their that's their career, is being familiar with it. Librarians are awesome. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and uh, stop for this week on, on the topic. We're running a little bit long, but we'll, we've got, we'll do two more weeks of this topic and hopefully cover quite a bit. And if you have any questions, drop us a line at the show at scubaobsessed.com, also on the Facebook page and the other sources we mentioned earlier. But certainly appreciate, uh, Kevin, uh, your ideas on it. And I think I'd like to go into some more on talking about the research and the librarian angle. And then also for next week, we'll take a look at some uh, of the different range of equipment, you know, from what is the entry level to the end. You know, we'll talk about boats. We'll talk about other things you do. So, um, you know, what's what's the light end of the range? What's the medium, which I say the medium is what we would do here in the Great Lakes. And then what's on the extreme where you're you're out in the oceans and you're looking, you know, for like what Ballard did with a Titanic. You know, those are completely different uh, scopes of hunting. Uh, uh, like to, And then next week we will also have in the show. So uh, a shipwreck hunter, uh, John Chatterton, uh, many of you may know him from the book Shadow Divers an experienced wreck hunter and diver. Uh, he'll be on as a guest next week. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. So let's quickly cover the diving that's been going on. Uh, Mac, I understand you've got some additional dives in, got wet again? Yeah, it's been the uh, same old place. <laughs> the uh, St. Joe River there in Niles. I think our most current one was tonight. Uh, we waited out the uh, heavy downpour and got in about Maybe half hour after the last thunderclap went by. Maybe not quite 30 minutes. But uh, the water temperature was, what, 74 tonight? Yeah, it was warm. Yeah, we had people in in their swim trunks and T-shirts, and that's it. Oh, wow. So, Kevin, what kind of viz were you seeing? Well, um, I had viz up up to 10 feet, uh, which is pretty good for the river. Um Although once I started mucking, looking for looking for bottles, um, quickly went down to zero. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's a nice thing about the current. There is it blows away, and unless you're down current from me, it doesn't blow. Mine blows to you then, you know. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, up, up to ten feet. Well, that's not too bad. Any any time, I think you can see more than six or seven in the river. That's a pretty good day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin, what else? I was going to say the biggest item we had today down on our end because you were. Uh, I don't know, maybe what, 1,000 feet up yards or upstream from us? I'd say so, yeah. Yeah, we were finding fish that uh, were following us right by our side that was as long as our arm. 
the biggest fish I've seen out there. What kind of fish were you saying? Uh, I took pictures of it. I'm going to hope. I'm hoping my camera took good shots of it. Mm-hmm. But the one that was following John, he he stuck his arm out, and the fin went from his shoulder to his fingertips. Wow. Okay. Yeah, mine was a little smaller than that. And this guy, he just stayed right to my right side. And every time I turned the rock over, he was right there. Well, I don't know. Um, that river, I don't know, possibly Skamani Steelhead might be my only guess because, you know, that's the only real large fish that spawns this time of year. You know, um, they'll be in the river. You know, um, well, of course, you can have there are some, some brown trout that live in the river year round. And, you know, but huh, I wouldn't like to see those pictures. Like to see I'm looking forward to seeing what they look like. Of course, it could be, you know, it could be, it could be pike or anything else, really, too. But you know, I saw a lot of bass. I saw lots of smallmouth, uh, I believe some perch. Um, the area that I was looking had a lot of limbs down, um, a lot of fishing tackle. There were, you know, quite a few. There, there were some lines involved. They even a couple of fishing rods sitting over there, too, I came across. Um Pop your fishing spot, and I can see why, because it was full of smallmouth bass. Well, that sounds like a good spot. Uh, any other diving uh, other than the Thirsty Thursday? Well, Lake Cora uh, was good. That was a SAS dive on Wednesday. Uh, they dove the opted side of normal, you know, where we go by the uh, state police headquarters. Mm-hmm. They went on the west side where the boat launch is, and uh, they had real good visibility. The biggest item, was, again, was the quantities of fish were more than normal, and the water temperature was very warm. Yeah, Excellent. I, I've been diving quite a bit. Um, you know, we dove the Havana. You know, Jim Kirk and I dove the Havana on Tuesday evening. Um, visibility was the you know, usual about, I don't know, five foot down. There wasn't very good visibility. Um, dove the Rockaway out of South Haven, the uh Previous Saturday with uh, John, John and uh, Rob went out there. And also I had a gal doing some super support out there. Teresa came out and you know, it was a good good dive out there for that. Um, we had about thirty foot visibility on the Rockaway that day. Um, posted a number of pictures on the Mud Club Facebook about what we had going on that day. Um, dove the Anna number five about three weeks ago. Um, dove the iron sides about three weeks ago. Um, crane and barge. Crane and, yeah, um, yeah, Boltima's barge. There's a barge uh, that's uh, about two thirds away to the end of number five, and I've had about seventy five foot visibility out there. Um, Boltima's barge is kind of underrated. Um, it's actually a really cool dive. Um, basically, it's an old industrial barge that's uh, been turned upside down. Well, that went down and turtled. Turned upside down when it went, when it went down, and it's uh, resting on the machinery and the crane on it. Um, great visibility, although it does silt up very easy. If you just give the, the bottom a dirty look, it'll silt up. Yeah. Um, nice thing about nice thing about that is that is if you're a deep a deep recreational diver, that is still within your recreational range, and there mm-hmm. is a bottom. Whereas opposed to Ann Arbor Five, uh, when you dive on that. If you if you're lucky enough to have a buoy line down, there's just that top section which is in recreational range before you go uh, into technical depths. Yeah, yeah. The Ann Arbor, I think you've only got about um, a third of the wreck is above that 130 mark. Um, you can get actually the propellers. I think are like the 
bottom of the prop, about 136. The axle of the prop might be about the, the, your limit on, tech, on uh, recreational depth. The, uh, the Bultima's barge, maximum depth about 125 there. Um, does have some penetration possibility there. You know, now, I actually, saw that you wrote that. When you're talking penetration, is that like within between the, the plates of the barge? Well, um, there's actually like a machinery room on it. Um, there's an area that's uh, – I have not actually been on – been inside the, the penetration area. Um, you know, when I was on it, I was uh, doing self-reliant diving, also known as solo diving. Um, I was not going to actually do a wreck penetration as a solo diver. That's you – know, I draw the line at that point. Um, but there's a machinery room there, which is quite open. Uh, you could probably just about get a Prius through it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a glorified swim-through. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is wreck penetration in sport depth here in our local preserve. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, do it safely, but yes, you can go inside this wreck. Um, you know, and it's, it has several different entry points. You've got a window on the side, so it's pretty well lit. I don't think you can actually get out the window on the side, but you're, you could swim right through it, you know, mm-hmm. and have a a different exit than entry. You know, you can do the whole, um, doing it properly, running a reel. There are quite a few zebra muscles down there. So if you, if you do want to run a reel, you know, make sure that your attachment point is not going to get cut by the muscles. And there, cause there are quite a few of them down there. Um, a lot of fish on it, a uh, surprising number of large, almost tame burbot. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got some shots where, I mean, I'm, I'm within two feet of it and he's, he's not moving. This is his wreck and he's not going anywhere. So, um, very cool dive though. Very yeah, cool dive. That is, that is a nice one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Mac, you have anything to plug? No, I'm pretty good for, for this, uh, episode. Well, how about you, Kevin? You got any, any, any resources or tools or projects you'd like to mention? Oh, I've always got projects going on. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've been looking, got a tip on a steamboat up in, um, Gun Lake. Um, managed to uh, rule out half the search area with uh, Debutowski a few weeks ago. Uh, we're going to work on that some more as soon as we're able to do that. Um, I'm always looking for more information about uh, the amusement park that was uh, next to Woods Lake and what ended up with all, all the uh, different pieces of that getting put in the, in the lake supposedly. That's always an ongoing on deal. You know, I, I never give up on a, on a project. You know, I may or may not find a boat. But I've always got a file on it, and it's always ongoing. It just means I haven't found it yet. So, Anybody have any dives planned for the weekend? I almost skipped that part. Well, Summerfest starts tomorrow that in Chicago, but that's falling out of airplanes, not diving under the water. <laughs> uh, well, that's just diving, skydiving, you know. But. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've got a dive planned for uh, Sunday. Um, a couple guys... Uh, Rob Sinski and Ryan Amon and I are going out to um, Hanover number five. Um, just three of us. We There might be a second boat going out. We haven't quite got confirmation on the second boat. My boat does have two engines on it. The second engine is a, you know, a, a six horse kicker, but worst case would get us in. So I feel comfortable, you know, taking that about anywhere. Um, that's our plan for Sunday. Um, I have a plan, a dive plan for the following Sunday as well, but I'm, not going to talk about that one right here. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we thank and thanks, Kevin, for coming on. Look forward to having you on again next week. 
Hey, thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. And uh, let's see here. I think we are to that time of the show. You ready? Ever ready. In the hospitals, the relatives gathered in the waiting room where their family member lay gravely ill. Finally, the doctor came in looking tired and somber. I'm afraid to be the bearer of bad news, he said as he surveyed the worried faces. The only hope left for your loved one is this time is a brain transplant. It's an experimental procedure, semi-risky, and you'll have to pay for the brain yourselves. The family members sent silent and absorbed the news. After a length of time, somebody asked, well, how much does a brain cost? The doctor quickly responded, well, 5000 for a male brain and 200 for a female brain. The moment turned awkward. Men in the room tried not to smile, avoiding eye contact with the women. But some actually smirked. A man unable to control his curiosity blurted out the question everyone else wanted to ask. Why is the male brain so much more? The doctor smiled at the childish innocence and then to the entire group said, well, it's just standard pricing procedure. We have to mark down the price of the female brains because they've been used. Mm-hmm. See, I, I, I bet there's a few who didn't think it would go that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we just narrowly uh, missed uh, having a bunch of uh, irate people on the Facebook page. Mm-hmm. I'm sure your wife would be very pleased with you, Darren. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Stay safe. Recording has been completed. Yay.